0: Hey, live from AC Second fans, this is Chris Garrett's of Nothing Rhymes with Garrett's fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simul- cut, simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This week, back on the Pietist Schoolman podcast, varieties of the Protestant Reformation, both magisterial and radical. Welcome back to the Piet to Schoolman podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garrett, joined again by Sam Mulberry. Uh, I think we we're both feeling a little Reformation out. That's right. After October 31st, we took uh, last week off, Sam. Uh, uh, I think a few important things did happen in the wake of the 500th. Most important of all, in a kind of global historical sense, is the Reformation polka finally hit 300,000 It did. Views. It
1: did. Yeah, you went on a little on a mission via social media, and I think other people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we got up over 300,000 for the exciting. Reformation polka. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's... Again, it's, it, it's, it's probably going to be the great accomplishment of my life, <laughs> sad though that may be. So well, let us speak no more about it. I believe that. I said in class that it's my Guernica, right? Like, that's that's right. right. That's right.
0: Um, so we are, though, back to continue. We have uh, this week and then one more episode next week for this kind of mini-season about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But, Sam, let me give you a chance to plug a couple of other podcasts that, as we mentioned before, uh, this season of the Pieta Schoolman podcast is being simul podcast both on Christian Humanist Radio Network and on your own multi-pod
1: the live platform. from ac second network right, right so
0: uh for live from ac second listeners but also maybe for christian humanist listeners what's coming up
1: yeah uh so we posted earlier this week so i'm also the co-director of the honors program here at bethel so we had a uh, uh an honors colloquium about courage in print where we had um, two of our journalism professors so it's a, it was about an hour-long panel conversation with um, some Bethel journalists. It was really a great, a great conversation. so Scott Winter and Yuli Chang Zacker. Um, and I was telling Chris when I walked in. it feels like sweeps week for our podcast channel because we usually drop about one pod a week, but this is my third pod in less than twenty four hours I've recorded. So um, coming out uh, after this pod um, comes out on our feed, we're gonna have the first episode of Sarah Shady Public philosopher, um Sarah Shady from the uh, the Philosophy department here at Bethel. and our first episode we're talking about. Um, among other things, uh, Confederate memorials. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our Christian humanist
0: listeners who go way back, you might remember Sarah Shady as a co-host of CWC, the radio show from... Six some years ago. <laughs> That's right. having me. And speaking of CWC, the radio show. Yeah, we
1: revived week. a tradition that goes back to podcasting in in uh, the fall of two thousand six, which is we used to do a Thanksgiving episode. So we got the band back together uh, to do a five uh, five person pod Thanksgiving episode featuring patron saint of the week and uh, a number of other classics. So,
0: so I have no idea why most of people want to listen to that, but a very few of you just got very excited. That's to right. Hear that. So <laughs> check back on Thanksgiving morning and and see all your dreams come true. That's right. I Live. AC second on itunes right. so i 'll put a link to that on uh, the, the sh- on the blog post for this episode, which is both on the Christian humanist uh, page and also on the Pietaskuman blog itself so that 'll go up later today all right so let 's pick up our story. I wanted to call this the varieties of Reformation experience kind of crib from William James, but instead, I think we'll just call it magisterial and radical. Reformations, but what we want to do today is a kind of survey of once we get past Luther and the 95 Theses and the Diet of Worms, what does Protestant Reformation look like, especially as we get into maybe like a second generation and we start getting further and further out from Luther and we encounter Protestant reformers who were children really in the first wave of this and have inherited Protestantism and are developing it. And I think the first thing we actually ought to say. Is Reformation was often quite local. Like we're, we're tempted to think in terms of these big, huge chunks of Protestant traditions—Lutheranism, Calvinism, Anabaptism—we'll talk about today—but um, in the world of 16th-century Europe even with trade networks and the printing press, is intensely local. And so it tends to look very different depending on which city you're in or if you're in the countryside, for example, or which language you're speaking. And so this is where our expertise, I think, starts to run out. And again, we're just history teachers really talking about this. But if you really want to dive into the complexities and kind of richness of the Reformation story, let me recommend a book like Dearman McCullough's The Reformation, A History, which uh, actually came out like 2004, 2005, um, but I think has aged pretty well. It's still the kind of go-to like Reformation Reformation narrative. Uh, so McCullough is, uh, is an English historian, um, and he also has a newer book out for the anniversary called All Things New, which includes a set of essays about the English Reformation, which we might talk about but um it's it's a dense. I'm holding it right here, and I don't want to pick it up because I'll probably break something. It's like 800 good pages. So like, if you just want to really chew up, like the, the meat thought that it's, it's like 2,000 pages long, but 800 good ones. Right? <laughs> That's right. But uh, I, I certainly do recommend it. So I'll put a link to to a couple of his books on our on our show page. But let's start with magisterial reform. First of all, Sam, what is magisterial reform? As someone who gives this lecture once, yeah, a I mean these, from, these are
1: the reform movements that are are more closely tied to the seats of political power. So supported by um, the political hierarchies of the time. So, I mean, Luther is a magisterial reformer, obviously in the Church of England where it's, you know, the the identity of the church is tied to the throne. Uh, but even Calvin's working with the, the right. town council in, in uh, Geneva. Yeah, so magisterial in the sense of magistrate right. is probably the English word. I
0: mean, it's interesting because it also relates to a word Protestants don't like, like magisterium. Mm-hmm. So it, it suggests, though, reform wedded to power. Right to authority. Now, it's not always a perfectly tight relationship. We'll talk more about Calvin in a second, but he has um, a sometimes tense relationship with the authorities in Geneva. He's not a citizen of Geneva. Um, Sometimes they're unnerved by the directions he's taking. But generally, there's a kind of partnership, alliance, sympathy of aims, and in any case, there's protection. Mm -hmm. The reason Luther is able to survive, and Lutheranism, at least in parts of Northern Europe, is able to endure, is that you get you've got magistrates who back this, whether it's Frederick the Wise or, like, you know, it's not to, to my heritage. You know, the Reformation goes to places like Denmark and Sweden and indirectly then to Norway and Finland because kings pretty quickly decide to back it. And, and you know, sometimes then run detention with reformers like the Petri brothers in Sweden. Um, so it, in a sense, well, we'll see that for some people this actually then represents a kind of perversion of the Reformation because it implies – a kind of worldliness, right? I mean, there's a deal struck here with people mm-hmm. in power who might actually be entrenched authorities who ought to be reformed, but instead they're your partners in this enterprise and you might have to re- restrain yourself.
1: Well, and and I think it also, it shapes worldview and it shapes theology. So I always talk with students about uh, when we read Luther's On Secular Authority and we, we get to the end of it and I say, well, okay, let's take a look at the picture Luther cre- or talks about for the government and it's like, isn't it striking that what he says the government does is protect Christians? To, it's like, well, and that's kind of exactly what they did for him. Right. So, so like, like I think it, it helps shape the worldview. Um, it does. I think it's also a very
0: timely thing to think about. In, in some ways, this is what we're living through right now.
1: Maybe, especially
0: if you're from the kind of evangelical branch of uh, Protestantism, I don't know how close everyone's following like the Roy Moore scandal, but it feels like maybe we've started to reach a tipping point where evangelical Protestants are wondering, what's the cost of political alliance, and are there points at which the means really, or the ends can't really justify the means of politics? And so, I mean, we certainly see this in the case of Luther. I don't want to focus too much about him today, but... Uh, we will talk about the Peasants' War and some of those reformers later. And, you know, I think the pamphlet Luther writes against the peasants, we've already talked about, is a fairly scandalous work of his. Um, you know, I don't know if we did talk about another of the key magistrates that Luther works with, this guy called Philip of Hesse. He's one of the leading figures in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, helps, uh, you know, actually tries to bridge the differences between the Reformed and Lutheran branches. Uh, Philip is in a fairly loveless arranged political marriage, and then falls in love with a younger woman in the late 1530s. And you know, there's some kind of parallels here to what we'll talk about with Henry VIII in England. But goes to his Protestant reformers and asks, "What do I do about this?" You know, and and they said, "Well, you can't get divorced, right? Like that's just not an option. It's pretty clear from the New Testament we're not supposed to get divorced." Uh, and so, what do you do? And in the end, he manages to talk people like. Luther, Philip Melanchthon, uh, Martin Bucer into saying, you know, maybe in the end, uh, multiple marriages is the way to go. Like, Hmm. there's some Old Testament evidence for this, right? And so he commits bigamy in 1540, and what were meant to be kind of private councils become very public, and it's deeply embarrassing to leading Protestant reformers. Um and so the, like those are some of the costs that, that get bound up with doing magisterial reformation. So in some ways, though, the most famous one is a second-generation reformer, uh, John Calvin, who is actually Jean covin he's, he's French. He goes up in Doyon in northern France, studies at the University of Paris, famously at the same college that Ignatius Loyola is at, that Erasmus had lived at. Um, has a kind of conversion experience we might talk about, um, and then it decides to uh, shift from law into uh, being a pastor and a theologian. Is on his way to Strasbourg, Martin Bucer's Reformation city, but is diverted then to Geneva, which is this independent, you know, kind of French-speaking Swiss canton. Uh, and, you know, over a long period of time with some kind of detours along the way, leads the Reformation in Geneva and writes maybe the greatest Protestant systematic theology until the 20th century the Institutes of Christian Religion. Um, I don't think either of us is what you would call a Calvinist. No. Is that theology is usually interpreted, which you know, implies a certain view of God's sovereignty, of salvation, of uh, sinfulness. You know, we're certainly not five point Calvinists, which is 17th century kind of dutch version of of what calvin is thinking about but what do we appreciate about calvin
1: i will say i uh i've been mentored and worked with a number of people who come out of the Reformed tradition and um what i always find interesting is the people who and like and these are deeply calvin people uh neil and virginia Lettinga are you know utterly that they were my mentors when i was here and what strikes me about them is like when, when, when the word calvin come or name calvin or Calvinism comes up it really it generally applies to the the view of salvation but what's interesting is when i think about those folks like that's kind of the last thing i think about in terms of they really do embody his ideas about um transformation of culture and lives of gratitude and and how that how how i guess this is tied into god's sovereignty and salvation but how that leads us to living a particular way of life dedicated to I think uh, the importance of kind of transformational work and kingdom work, those types of things. Right.
0: So in the course we teach that we've mentioned a few times, Christian and Western culture, I remember coming into the course, kind of actually inheriting it from the Leningas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that by itself is a significant, you know, replacing a couple of Dutch-Canadian Calvinists with <laughs> a pietist instead. But there was a Calvin reading, and I was like, oh, this is, you know, what little I knew. This is going to be about double predestination, right? And instead, it's about... Um, Moderation in the use of mm-hmm. earthly blessings, right? And about calling. And I always tell students, we just did this last week. This is the most important thing you're going to read. Like, if like tear this page out, like keep this with you. It usually happens about the time students are registering for courses, right. picking a major. So, what what is there? Because it comes from a section of the Institutes that's then separately published in the 1550s as the Golden Booklet of Christian Life or Christian Living. What what is Calvin's advice about vocation?
1: Uh, I mean it's what what's interesting is so he talks about being true being true to one's calling um, but what I always have to point out to students is is calling especially at a university is a term that um, is filled with a bunch of meaning and and I mean that calling is often code for what do you want to be when you grow up and that's not really what Calvin's talking nope. about I mean he he's really saying calling is not this aspirational thing, this thing that you want to be that's out there, but it really has far more to do with. What has God put in front of you, and sort of being true to those things on a on a on, a, on a, really a daily basis, um, and and really putting aside your own kind of dreams and aspirations a little bit—that it's not about that your calling may not lead you to great things, like. You know, he talks about the idea of, you know, the person who frees the city from bondage or something like that. That would be that that's something we aspire to. But he's like, maybe not. Maybe that's not what God's putting in front of you. Mm -hmm. And 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 you need to put those aspirations aside. And and if really being true to God's calling and God's sovereignty is looking at the calling in really those small day to day ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean, I always—I actually heard this from a Calvinist here on the faculty of Bethel. Like, sometimes at Christian college, you get the sense that a real calling is one that directly serves the church in a religious setting. It's being a pastor, being a missionary, being a worship leader, teaching at a Christian school, like that—that's a real calling. The rest of you are doing jobs, right? And and this professor, who's an economist, had a very strong sense like that—that that, that's a deep misunderstanding of what someone like Calvin would say about calling. There is no job so simple, dull, or dirty that it can't highly glorify God, right? And. I, this also happens to coincide with like us giving tests back and so i always tell students there's that's about the simplest dullest dirtiest part of my job but in a sense how, how does that glorify
1: god well right. the other the other message that I, I try to get students to see there and this actually comes from another calvinist on our staff or, or grew up in that tradition amory coistra um our our department chair um i remember her talking once w- about students and calling and again her idea was that Students miss the fact that they're called to be students. Mm -hmm. You know, while they're here, that they're so focused on what's to come that they forget that God has called them right now to be students. And and being true to that calling will probably take care of the other callings out there in the future. Yeah,
0: I think what's helped me uh, as a non Calvinist who grew up just at a reserve is to realize that I think what I think of as Calvinism is probably mostly kind of uh, mediated through Jonathan Edwards. And maybe like nineteenth century Presbyterian and sometimes through fundamentalism, mm-hmm. and you know I, I think that you know those are certainly the legitimate expressions of Calvinism, but sometimes we we miss some aspects, so I always like to read for students a quotation from uh, another Calvinist, in a sense, Marilyn Robinson, who's a great novelist who comes from more of the congregationalist tradition, is a liberal Protestant. So uh, she said this once, Calvin has a strange reputation that is based very solidly on the fact that nobody reads him. I found that he's a beautiful theologian. I was and continue to be struck by the power of the metaphysics and the visionary quality of his theology, which no one seems to have any awareness of. And here I always think about our our former colleague, Kevin Craig, always talked about Calvin's view of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. which had never occurred to me. But, uh, you know, actually, is a logical expression of the other themes. Uh, So Robinson continues. uh, Calvin says we have completely fallen away from the glory of God and look what we are. And then he describes this glorious creature. He was ready to grant the dark side of reality and completely lyrical about what is splendid about it, including human consciousness, human presence most profoundly. It reminds me that you know, Calvin is trained as a Christian humanist, mm-hmm. right? And so at the same time that he'll say, you are not your own, you belong to God, and you are deeply impacted by sin, I don't think necessarily believes then that sin has eradicated the image of God within us or the potential for for human achievement, as long as we're faithful to our divine calling.
1: Right, and, and and that's the other thing. I mean, the other thing I talk with students about is, like, when we talk about worldviews, like, Luther's pretty pessimistic. Yeah. Calvin's really optimistic if you read him in a particular way, right? If you, if you read this idea that if you start with God's sovereignty and that we're not our own and we belong to God and this world belongs to God and we're called to do this work that's transformational, that so much about Christianity is about transformation, that he actually... Is optimistic about this, you know, about this world, and uh, I think he sometimes gets a bad rap as because if you focus on human sinfulness, you think, "Wow, that's that guy is just a pessimist," and, and he's actually like that's the part about Calvin that I love is right. is um, I love his optimism about the meaning the meaning of work.
0: Yeah, at the same time, I also do appreciate it's probably good for us to be reminded about the reality of sin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a, I mean, one thing that's helped me is getting to know some Calvinists, right, in in real life or at least in virtual life. So I blog with a Calvin professor, a historian named uh, Kristen uh, Dumais, and she recently posted on her kind of response to the Reformation was, well, this is great. We should talk about grace, but maybe what American Christians really need to do is think a little bit better about sin. And she quoted from a Reformed theologian at Western Seminary named Suzanne McDonald, Uh, And so I thought I'd just read a little bit of what she says. So she's actually working from the canons of Dort. This is that 17th century document I alluded to earlier. So uh, this is kind of Kristen summarizing um, um, uh, Suzanne McDonald. Because sin infects and affects every human being and everything that human beings do, injustice is inevitable on an individual level and in our systems and structures. Uh, Kristen writes, McDonald puts this in true reform fashion, quote, we are born into the web of everyone else's sinful choices, and our own inclination away from God means that we will inevitably contribute to that web web too. And so I I do appreciate that as a kind of, you've got this optimism, but you also have a sense of, but this is the task before us, Mm -hmm. right? Is, you know, it's possible if we are faithful to our calling in God's power, we are maybe, but like we have to understand we're part of this web that we have helped to create, and it's not enough just to, like, bring about a bunch of individual conversions right. necessarily. Like, this has created a thick kind of system of structures of sin. And if we're going to do something redemptive, like, that, that's actually what we have to work on. Um, and then speaking of conversion, the last thing that strikes me about Calvin is, we, you know, partly we celebrate, you know, the 500th anniversary of Luther because he came first. Partly it's because Luther writes a lot about himself, and Luther tells a good story about himself. And John Calvin does not tell a great story about himself because that's not his interest. Mm -hmm. His interest is writing, here's what a Protestant system would look like. Here's how we're going to answer all these questions. Here's how we're going to build institutions. So I was struck recently, Martin Marty, the great Lutheran church historian, has a little blog that Religion News Service hosts. And he wrote recently about, you know, maybe now it's time for us to focus on Calvin instead of Luther. And he closed with this. Biographers generally have less interest in Calvin than in Luther, whose quest for grace left him writhing through webs of spiritual agonies until grace came. Calvin, almost as productive a writer as Luther, did not need volumes, as Luther did, to account for the change from his Roman Catholic past to his evangelical future. He used only two words in Latin translated, sudden conversion. That's kind of the extent of it. Um, Still, he was a towering genius whose influence, for better and for worse, remains with us. Like millions of other heirs of the Reformation, my kind will never get bored, certainly not when sudden conversions and achievements make and leave their mark. Um,
1: and I think there's probably some
0: truth there, too. I remember reading, like, Alistair McGrath's biography of Calvin, and he almost had to kind of admit this is, I don't have, like, an exciting, right. like, Damascus Road experience to talk about. And Instead, it's this kind of story of long faithfulness in a certain direction that, again, for better or for worse, leads us to a really important branch of Protestantism. Right, I true.
1: love to teach it out of biography, and it always feels like and then this happens, and then we could, then we could talk about cool, like, interesting stuff afterwards, but there's this moment where it feels like I'm withholding a story that I'm not the one withholding it. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm always struck
0: that Calvin insists that he, he just wants to be buried in, in an anonymous grave. Like, he does not want to be the subject of hagiography. Um... You know, in some ways, you know, probably... Yeah, well, we wouldn't have. It's a message for him, though. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah. it, it does feel there is a kind of cohesiveness to Calvin that isn't always there with our, our friend Martin Luther. Um, so I want to come back though, <laughs> before you want oh, sure. that though. Yeah.
1: Just just from the Martin Marty quote, like a f- fun Martin Marty fact. Do you know who name drops Martin Marty a lot and is a good friend of his? No, it's Norman Lear. <laughs> what? Yeah, I've heard a couple. Inter- for some reason, Norman Lear's like circulating on podcasts with interviews, and he always he's like friends with Martin Marty and always drops his name. That. Wow, that, that well—that's the subject for another time. There you yes, go. There. Okay, um, I, I do want to move on and talk
0: about maybe some of the less savory aspects of magisterial Reformation, and maybe a bridge to that is—I um, think we both, at a certain level, enjoy teaching the English Reformation. Absolutely, you know, that's to, all. But that's all story. That's all story. And it—I mean—we it, actually used to have just a single lecture on like the English Reformation and Anglicanism. <laughs> I think what we struggle with though is again, neither of us actually come from this tradition. Um, very few of our students do. Like, we're starting to get a few students from, like, conservative Anglican congregations Mm -hmm. around, but it's pretty unusual to have any student at Bethel with any even indirect, like, we don't get Methodists. We we, we, I mean, the Baptists we get are not descended from, like, the English Baptist tradition. They're the Swedish Pietistic Baptists, right? And so it always feels a little bit odd telling the story to students who ultimately couldn't care less, don't really want to know about Anglicanism. Neither of us has, I think, felt any propensity to go down the Canterbury Trail at any point. And yeah, like, A, it's a good story to tell. It's our kind of soap operatic moment to tell the story of this odd political, marital Mm -hmm. sort of reformation. Um, I also know from, like, our trips to Europe, like, I think we both have enjoyed, like, our experiences of Anglican worship Yeah, quite a bit. And, like, one thing that strikes me about, because it is such, it, it's it's like the um, Platonic ideal, for better or worse, of a magisterial reformation, where the magistrates are actually running things, the whole purpose is to construct a Church of England, but then, you know, once you get to the the aftermath of Henry, um, how do you do that with a religiously diverse population where you've got in the same pew people who in any other setting want to, slitty, want to burn each other at the stake, right?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that attracts me to that story is um, is that it really – you know, we talk a lot about when we get to the Reformation about the, the split between unity and purity – and it's interesting to see a Protestant group who are focusing on unity, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I mean it's not it takes us a while in the course to get to religious toleration, and and and, and the Church of England mm-hmm. under Elizabeth isn't <laughs> toleration, but there is but it is un- it is trying at a kind of unity, which is uh, almost a breath of fresh air after some of the the Reformation stuff, which is all about. Um, sort of declaring oneself right and and dividing over that.
0: Yeah, I mean after telling the story of you know Lutheran and Reformed Protestants in Central Europe who agree on everything except what happens in the Eucharist and so they'll never agree again. Yeah. And you know, Luther will make Zwingli cry, it's kinda of fun to come to someone like Thomas Cranmer who says, Let's just write a really good liturgy for this and we right. can just pray it together and and we don't even have to believe what's happening. You know, that, that kind of dovetails with my sort of uh, evangelical covenant pietist squishiness. On th- I've often said, I serve communion a lot in our church, and I say the words, this is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you without really knowing what I mean, except that it's really important what we're doing. And that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a kind of Anglicanist. But I think there is something then about the power of worship to gather the communities yes. together. And you know, sometimes this... In my experience of the Anglican tradition, like it becomes all then about simply the sacrifice of beauty, right? And I mean, we lose sight maybe of what's at the center of it. But I think we've each had some pretty powerful experiences of Anglican worship. I mean, it's partly just being in old places and mm-hmm. hearing beautiful things, but it's partly it's such a such a contrast, right? Uh, and, and you have that sense of like closeness to. You know, even song Westminster Abbey gathers pilgrims from all around the world, some of whom are deeply religious, some of whom are just kind of tourists, trying to find a freeway into the Abbey. Mm-hmm. And yet you sit there in the choir, you know, um, hearing the Psalms sung in Latin or in English, and um, I don't know, Like I feel like the body of Christ as much then as anything that ever happens um, in my regular religious walk. So, yeah, if nothing else, like that is a kind of legacy of a magisterial reformation that I'm, I'm inclined to celebrate more than, more than yeah. lament, yeah. right? Um, let me talk about one other aspect of magisterial reformation that's a really important part of the story for Dermot McCullough, who... not quite sure of his relationship to the Church of England right now. My sense is he's left it, and largely over sexuality. McCullough is openly gay. I think he's married at this point. And in his book on the Reformation, he has a couple of chapters about sexuality, gender, and family that I think are really important to read. And one thing he argues, and he's not alone in saying this, is that The Reformation is both preceded by and then kind of accelerates and deepens what he calls a Reformation of manners, uh, or he calls it an increasing atmosphere of official regulation and strictness. So in the Middle Ages, not to say that it's a live and let live kind of society or it's full of like libertinism, but um, in the late 15th century and then in both Protestant and Catholic Europe, you do get an increasing kind of regulation of marital life, of family life, of sexual behavior. So he says in the Catholic Reformation, you get this amplification of the importance of celibacy. Uh, and But in Protestant Europe, like in places place like Geneva, you got not just increasing emphasis on church discipline, but it's backed by the power of the state. And in parts of Reformed Europe, there are even attempts to restore Old Testament laws about punishment for adultery is actually death. And those are pretty isolated cases, but generally there's a greater emphasis on using the state to regulate um, what what happens in in the bedroom, right? Um, This is when sodomy laws become very pervasive across Protestant and Catholic Europe. Um, But the other thing he says happens is, especially in Protestant Europe, you get this kind of new view of the importance of the father in the household, and Macaulay calls it kind of patriarchal masculinity, um, which goes against then in other parts of the Reformation, a kind of interest in, you know, maybe if we read the scriptures again, we find a call for a kind of gender equality, Hmm. So, for example, there's, uh, I don't know if she's really famous, but there's a French Calvinist named Marie Dantier um, who writes a letter to um, um, Marguerite of Navarre that's actually been published lately. And and she's making this argument, like, actually, you know, the Reformation needs to be a reformation of gender roles within the church. But that's largely squelched then by instead this kind of church-state alliance to insist on a certain model of what family life looks like. Okay, and then there's the final thing to consider here, which is that maybe the Magisterial Reformation was a false reformation. So when I've taught um, this kind of class that inspired this season, I've been in Baptist churches. And so I was like, at a certain at this moment in the course, to trot out a Baptist church historian named H.C. Vettors, who's now what we call an American Baptist at the time Northern Baptist, writing in the early 20th century. And here's what he has to say. The Reformation that actually prevailed in the 16th century was a perversion of the genuine movement resulting from the unholy alliance with the state made by those who are called reformers. And he is animated by a a very classically Baptist idea that the church and state need to be totally separate, that religious freedom needs to be respected. All that matters is a New Testament church that's regenerate, that's a voluntary assembly of believers. And so he looks at Luther's Reformation, Calvin's Reformation, the English Reformation, he just sees political power plays. I mean, and he sees, um, you know, maybe people who have a kind of instinct towards genuine reform and sola scriptura, but they're willing to compromise it whenever necessary. And so instead, he's naturally drawn to radical reformers, as we call them, to the Anabaptists we might talk about. But there are other radical reformers, uh, uh, too, but people who. Um, i back to last episode in Brad Gregory's view are the real Protestants, the people who really take Sola Scriptura seriously, who really believe Reformation requires radical change and, and no sense in which any structure is beyond amending or replacing or just abolition. So we we do teach a lecture on this that we call the Radical Reformation. We talk about the Peasants' War, which we had talked about in our last episode. We talk about people like Andreas Karlstadt. So we've already kind of hinted at the what happens when you say scripture alone. We get some divides. The main group we talk about there are the Anabaptists. So, Sam, I don't know if, like, growing up, you had any encounters with that. We don't have a lot of Anabaptists in American society, really?
1: No, and and, and the ones we, I mean, growing up, I, like, I was aware of, like, the Amish, but I didn't understand where they came from. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't, and and I don't even know, I mean, this would be, like, in childhood, like, I didn't necessarily even associate them with a religious group. I associated them with a kind of counter-cultural group, Mm -hmm. but not, but not that that was rooted in, I didn't know the history. Yeah, I yeah, know.
0: I mean, we have Amish colonies in southern Minnesota, um, in, in Wisconsin, in Iowa. My wife grew up around Old Order Mennonites, um, who would go to school with her until eighth grade and then drop out. Um, the girls would dress differently, wear bonnets. Um, we have a few Hutterite communities, I think, in western Minnesota, then out towards the Dakotas. So there are a few of these expressions. I mean, like I know there are people who think that they're Anabaptists because they've read Yoder or mm-hmm. Hauerwass or Greg Boyd or someone. And, and like aspects of that thought appeal to mm-hmm. them, you know, I think rightly. But I mean, a big part of the Anabaptist experience is the communal experience right. and the sense of um, what ecclesiology means. Like there is a gathered church that is separate from the world in some significant visible sense. And there's, you know, this is the big controversy. Like there's a sense of discipline and mm-hmm. order. And you read scripture communally, not individually. And You know, this often produces its own kind of perversions, right? I mean, there there are ways in which this then suppresses dissent. It, um, you know, reimposes patriarchy, certainly, in a lot of these communities. Um, But, again, again, here, as a non-Anabaptist, just as as a non-Calvinist, I can find things to admire about Calvin. I mean, there are things I really admire about. There are moments where I catch myself thinking, If I just not thought this through, am I just like, do I not have the courage of my convictions to take the leap into nonviolent, non-resistance? Like, I'm a pedo-baptist, right? I I was baptized as a child. I baptized my kids as children. Like, I believe kind of in Luther's idea that God gives faith to anyone. It's not Mm -hmm. our choice. But there's one where I feel like... Maybe you do need to make a kind of profession that you want to be a disciple of Christ and take up the cross, whatever the cost. And you can't do that as an infant. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think I think you know in the um, in the twentieth, twenty first century, there's the I think with in, in American Christianity, at least, there is this sense of um, kind of lashing your faith together. Maybe it's a kind of ecumenism, really, like of like like you lash your faith together with different traditions you know and i I see i see that among a lot of the uh a lot of students here um as they're coming especially if they're coming from traditions or not uh, traditions is the wrong word they're coming from churches that don't emphasize their denomination or their tradition that much and sometimes they come here and historically they then encounter Mm -hmm. religious traditions and religious denominations and there is this sense of lashing it together like like there are aspects of anabaptism that they find attractive and they and that becomes part of their raft of christianity i mean that that might be what 21st century uh, american christianity is going to continue to look like yeah it's a
0: kind of genetic recombination or something it feels like And, and i can understand especially in this moment you know if you're disillusioned by kind of our version of you know a magisterial alliance You know, this presents you with an alternative and, you know, one that seems awfully faithful to certain readings of Scripture that especially privilege the Gospels. I mean, I always tell students, one way to think about this is that if you grew up Amish, for the first, like up until Easter, in your liturgy, all you would hear are the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And so for all of your life, you would hear the Sermon on the Mount repeated over and over and over again. And you would probably not be tempted to spiritualize it away or to rationalize the ways in which you break with that, right, or to say, well, that was just the first century, but it doesn't matter now. You actually would probably be shaped by that deeply. Um, or I, I, the other story I tell is on sabbatical last fall, uh, we had some chances to travel. And so we were in Virginia, and actually around 11 in the We were in Virginia, but um, we decided to go up to Pennsylvania, mostly to see Gettysburg. But I happen to have a friend named Steve Nolte at Elizabethtown College. He's one of the leading scholars of, of the Amish um, in America. And so Steve offered to take us on an actual kind of tour of Amish country, not the tourist sort of version. Mm-hmm. But like, we actually, like, sat in a parlor with an Amish farmer, and I talked about my grandpa Peterson. We talked about baseball, and we talked about what's like parenting. Um, and it was really deeply cool. I'm like, you got a sense of the variety of the Amish. Like, we bought ice cream from the beachy Amish who are okay using cars and have a drive-through hmm. um, at their farm where they sell ice cream. Um, and so like you started to get some hints of the complexity of it. But the moment that really stuck out to me is um, we had actually gone to an early Mennonite meeting house. It was kind of the religious history part of the trip. And then off in the distance was a schoolhouse, and all of a sudden kids came out, and it was recess, and they were Amish. And they started playing baseball because that's Amish's favorite sport. And, And then all of a sudden I was watching them, and it kind of struck me of where we were and I asked Steve, oh, so where is Nickel Mines compared to this? And he said, it's about 10 minutes away. And so Nickel Mines was the place where like 10 years to the day before um, a deranged Mennonite had walked into an Amish schoolhouse, sent the boys away, and then shot the girls who were left. It was, unfortunately, we're pretty inured to school shootings now, but I think generally because it was the Amish, this peaceful people, Mm -hmm. it was pretty shocking. But the real shocking part was the Amish response, right, is that they immediately forgave. The the shooter actually killed himself, but, like, they forgave his family. They went to his funeral. The money they received, they gave to the family. They maintained relationships with his widow and with his family, with his mom. And so Steve was one of the people who wrote a book about it called Amish Grace. And in it, uh, Steve and his co-authors talk about the importance that the Amish have been shaped by 500 years of being a persecuted community. And so when you come across passages in the New Testament that talk about forgiveness and love of enemies, that that means something deeply to them because they've had to do this. They tell the story of Dirk Willems, who is this Mennonite captured, set to be executed, escaped, running across a frozen pond in springtime. His jailer fell into the thin ice behind him and he turned around and saved him, was rearrested and burned at the stake. And, like, that's a model then. That's catechesis for, for certain Anabaptist kids of what it means like to live this life is to love your enemies, to forgive. And so that it wasn't almost even a, a decision, right? It was just like you had been shaped so deeply by that community. And so in a place where a lot of us feel like we can kind of pick and choose from traditions, it makes me wonder, is there anything then that deeply shapes us? Or are we just all kind of at war with these different impulses we've inherited from the Reformation, and like I, it, it doesn't mean that I'm going to go join the Amish or my community, but like it does make me wonder. Well, what, what about my experiences deeply shaping me so that my instinctive, what would my instinctive response be in a situation like that, or in a moment of political crisis like I think we're going through right now? And it, we'll talk more next week about legacies of the Reformation. That's a kind of legacy of the radical Reformation. In the 16th century, to be radical is to be a revolutionary, you know, and this is the revolutionary kind of Christian witness in the 21st century. And so maybe it's something we all should be thinking about, like, what are the legacies that have been kind of woven into our religious DNA over the last 500 years? Because I think that is one that, that emerges, at least from the Anabaptist branch of the Radical Reformation. Okay, I think we're running out of time. We both have things to get to, but Sam, it's been fun to survey some of these. It's been great. Yeah, no, we're actually now done with the Reformation in this course. I, I think we're um, kind of looking back fondly. On to the revolution. scientific revolution. That's then. right. We'll not do a podcast on <laughs> that. So thanks for joining us for our survey of Protestant reformers, magisterial and radical. Next time, Sam and I will wrap up this mini-season by assessing the legacies of the Reformation and by asking what it might mean to be, to cite another Protestant ideal, reformed and always reforming today. If you did like what you hear, uh, you can read more of my musings on Christianity, history, and education at the Pietist Schoolman, pietistschoolman.com, and every Tuesday at The Anxious Bench. My newest book, The Pietist Option, is available now from Amazon, Barnes Noble, and other major retailers. Pietist Schoolman Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was engineered and produced by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening.